See, this morning, I, I want us to, to interact with the Lord. We're actually going to begin a series in a, in a couple of weeks that has to do with the mission that God has a church to be on. That, that's what we're going to be focused on for a short season. But there's some things that I just have been sensing from the Lord for some time now that I just have been looking for a parking space to share some of these things. And a couple of weeks back, I just felt like just as we go into this new series, this would be a moment to share some things the Lord has been really sharing with a number of us in, in some categories. And I've been hearing it from other people in the church. We've been interacting with it as a group of leaders and elders and praying really for about a year or so in some of these categories. So I titled the message, A New Thing in Dark Days. But let me start with this question. What if the Lord wanted to do something new among us? And among us has a variety of features to it. Right there, There's an among us that you and I live in the United States of America. At this particular moment, we are a part of a, a, a family of God in this country. So I could ask that question. What if God wanted to do something new among us? Uh, as God is ordained, we're not just Christians who happen to live in America. We are part of a local church. We function as members of a body. We are fingers and hands and toes and eyes all together in the kingdom of God in ways that matter. So I could ask that question in this context of being a local church. What if God wanted to do something new among us? But then there's this other dimension to our lives. There's a family dimension to our lives. So there's another collection of people that you and I are doing our lives amongst family members. Husbands and wives and children and generations are together. What if God wanted to do something new among us in that setting? But, but then for every individual, because Christianity is a, a gathered activity, but it is an individual activity as well. And so for each person, apart from you being married to another person, apart from you having connection to a family member, apart from you being a part of this local church, for each person, what does it feel like to ponder that question for you? What if God wanted to do something new in you right now? So we're going to learn about God doing new things today. And that's a phrase that gets thrown around quite, quite honestly, having lived in the Pentecostal charismatic world and people who have come to this church because you, you have wanted to be taught the word of God faithfully. Uh, we are a marriage of both. And so when you hear the word new things, some people put on their seatbelt like, oh my gosh, it's about to get weird because new things are associated with weird things in a lot of settings. But we're gonna, so I first want to make a case for the biblical reality of new things. That's not some strange term invented by charismatics somewhere. This is God announcing new things. So I want to do that, but I want to pull in the reality, and I do want to hooky spooky a little bit, um, that God has been saying that to us for a while. And I'm not sure we're always ready to receive it. And that's where I think maybe what the Lord wants to do is posture us to receive new things. So let me give you something just that, that the Lord did about a year ago. Now in January of 2021, so not this past January, the previous January, I just had this unusual, I remember one, one moment was, I think it was a Thursday. And I just felt just disturbed by the Lord just to get some time with him that day. And the Lord just began to stir some things in me that were vivid. I was writing them down and I felt like I just needed more time to just digest and get around what God was saying. So I scheduled a two-day prayer retreat the next week and I, I sent some thoughts to the elders. I was just going to be taking some time just to try and be still and listen and hear from God and what God was saying. And one of the things that in those two exchanges, one, I think it was the first one that I got this, I'm about to read to you. And then I felt like the two days I spent time interacting with it, but there was, there were some things I was being impressed by the Lord. I was writing down some thoughts that were coming to me. And there was this one particular paragraph that stood out to me in such a way that I actually put it in parentheses as though this isn't you. 
saying this. This is what it felt like. I'm not think. I'm just writing this down because this is how it feels. Something God seems to be saying. And I sent that to the elders. I let them know that. And, and you know, we are always seeking to be discerning. Is this the Lord? And of course, these are not scriptures words, but this is the impression that I got. And this is what I sent to them. Quote, we cannot exist on yesterday's manna. We each and all need some right now engagement and encounter with God that affects us and shapes us for the hour in which we are living. Typical devotional patterns and life routines won't suit the times we are navigating and we will end up seeking to put new wine into old wineskins. And then I finished the email I was sending to them just saying, this thought continued to come to me throughout my time with the Lord. And I believe the Lord is seeking for us to find some right now engagement and encounter with him that would provide faith, burden, or clarity to our needed agenda. And also to help us to be open to new wineskins. So that's January of 2021. 2021 was an incredibly busy, noisy year, as you guys can remember. Personally, that was true for all of us. Personally, that was true for the church. April 28th, I get a text. Barbara, you don't mind if I mention your name, I hope. She's from Barbara Mula. Uh, I, I have been able to read this without crying, so I'm going to try. <laughs> this is the text, April 28th, last year. <clears throat> Pastor Keith, the Lord placed you on my heart yesterday, which caused me to pray a lot for you in our church. I asked the Lord, is there anything you want me to encourage him with? And I felt the Lord tell me two words, new wine. So I prayed on it a little more and I felt that I should send this to you. Luke chapter five, verse 36. No one tears a piece from a garment and puts it On an old garment, if he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. She said, I believe that the Lord is making, quote, new wine in our church and that this will require new wineskins, which means that there will be lots of change. I just what got to me in this word was obviously the strange zeroing in prophetically of God having made so much noise in my own soul and with the elders to talk about new wine and new wineskins. And then for God to awaken somebody else in the church to confirm that a few months later and say that again. But it was particularly caring because uh, I'm just not a guy who loves change personally. That's just how I'm wired. So for the Lord to have someone contact me and say, which means... There will be lots of change, Keith. (laughs) Do not dread or fear the change, but rather entrust it to the Lord. Do not drink of the old wine of the past, for then you will not desire the new. The old was good, but the new will be even better. So... That was words that God just continued to stir in us. And, and you know, for those of us who, who are here and you're venturing into the world of the Holy Spirit's ministry in modern settings, uh, when I hear words like that, when I encounter words like that, I didn't read you the whole email, but when I sent that word to the elders, I sent them with the sense of, hey, guys, evaluate this. I don't know how much of this is me and how much of this is the Holy Spirit speaking exactly what he wanted to say. And that's how we hold prophetic words. Uh, This is the only absolute word that we can get our hands on. But can I just tell you this? And 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 when I speak to other pastors in their churches and how they lead, etc., this is not a Bible class. This is a church. And in a church, God does specific things at specific times. He does that in your life. 
it, it is appropriate that you could pick this Bible up at any moment and open it and read from it at any moment. And you will get things that are very, very vitally important for your soul. But there is a God who speaks into our world and he says, right now, at this moment, among this people in this territory, I'm doing X, Y, or Z. He does that all over the Bible. And you and I have to make room for that in our own lives. So as, as God has been speaking this to us, it gives us not just faith that there's a God who's at work, but faith for God to be at work right now in this moment, in this way. And sometimes that's exactly what I need. I need God to show up in some of the details because life sometimes feels like God is nowhere to be found. I have no idea what's going on. This feels so confusing. All those things can be the way our lives feel. And God can show up and be saying something. And even in the context of what we're going to learn today, this word about God doing new things often is in a setting where it's very confusing to discern that. Right? We'll see that in just a second. So as we begin this year, I've had more than one person share Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18 and 19 with me. <clears throat> Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So hold on to the last part of that phrase. And there's so much here. And I hope I don't take too long trying to, because there's so much here. But when God starts to do a new thing, the fact that it's new can make it feel hard to perceive it because it's not familiar. It's not exactly the way it's always just felt and been. And then the context here is God is doing a new thing in a wilderness and a desert. How do you need to know if you found yourself in a wilderness, it would be hard to notice a lot of other things. You'd be absorbed in the wilderness conditions and the desert conditions. And then so God comes along and says, in the midst of a wilderness and a desert, I'm doing a new thing. And are you having a hard time perceiving it? Uh, well, quite honestly, God, yes. Yes, because it's new and it doesn't feel familiar. And because, I don't know if you've noticed, Lord, but... I'm in a wilderness and a desert. I'm just trying to figure out where to get my next drink from, much less discern something you're doing in the midst of this strange setting. But yet that's how God reveals this. In that Luke 5 passage, there is a description of something that was taking place, right? Isaiah says the same thing. There was old wine in old wineskins and there's not a disdain for that. Be careful how you read these passages. Not a disdain for that. This is not kick the old wine to the curb kind of a thing. That, that gives away something else. Something else operating in us in that moment. Because the old wine was good. The problem is not with the old wine. The problem is that when you stare only at the old wine, when the new wine comes, you're not aware of it. And you don't pay attention to it. The same thing is in Isaiah's correction. The problem, and I'm going to show you from Isaiah's context, this is not a put away these former things. They were a waste. They weren't valuable. Don't pay attention to that stuff. No, no, no. It's you have gotten absorbed in a former thing in such a way that when I do new things, you don't perceive them. I could do that with the Bible. I could be so in tune with first century Christianity and churches and what God was doing that I don't perceive what is God doing now among me. And by the way, you'll see a new thing will never violate this old thing. So the new thing isn't a weird thing. It's just new, right? It's just a little foreign. I think I wrote this in your outline, if you have an outline. In both these passages, there is an awareness that there is something new. And in both passages, there's a need to consider it rather than to be satisfied with the old. Both depict a people who won't engage what is current because they don't perceive it or they don't look beyond what they've already had. What if God wanted to do something new here in our country, in our church? In our lives. What if? 
We, we might need to learn some things here. Now listen, if there's a day in which God is doing new things, and we'll see in the scriptures, clearly he does. There is also a day where evil, sin, and darkness are up to their own new things. Right? Don't overlook that because I, I think we can fail to realize, and I think we have been in some of the darkest days that any of us have known in our lifetime. Maybe not in the world by any means, but in our lifetime, I think the last few years have been some of the darkest days that we have been experiencing. And it has both been nationally, church-wide, in the religious realm, and individually. Talk to more people who are wrestling through more emotional exhaustion, even depression in the last couple of years than, than has ever characterized their lives. And so if you've been experiencing some of that, it's, it's not just that you're going through some hormonal changes or you just had some bad circumstances come along. What if there is a darkness that can actually be oppressive and sit on us in a way that's different than the way it was sitting on us a few years ago? Right, when your weatherman breaks out, you know, the high pressure, low pressure thing, that pressure whether it's high or low, it does stuff to the atmosphere. When the pressure gets low enough, it creates hurricanes, right? And then they are extremely destructive. And the pressure change is what brought that sense of, oh, our lives have just become very stormy because the pressure has changed. Well, there's a spiritual dimension to that. The pressure in the spirit world is not always the same, right? Real quick, First Timothy 4.1. Now, the spirit expressly says that in later times, that word times right there is a Greek word kairos. I'm going to differentiate it from another word in a second. In later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Wait, wait, Paul, right now? No, 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 no. This is later times. So the pressure is going to change and a later time is going to generate that kind of falling away. Second Timothy 3, Paul again tells Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come kairos, times of difficulty. Some of your translations say perilous kairos. In the last days, in other words, Paul says, hey, right now, it's like he's a weather forecaster in the spirit. He says, there's, there's a pressure gradient that's going to change in the future. The way evil shows up and the way it gets experienced by people. It's going to be perilous times. Well, Paul, what about these times? Well, they're pretty bad too. But that time is going to be noticeably different. That's going to be a moment of more intensity. And that's what we learn from Satan's temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. It says the spirit departed from him until an opportune kairos. A moment, a particular moment, that moment was going to have particular ingredients that the devil was looking for. And once those things were in place, he knows now I show up and I do my thing now. So listen, when, when Mr. Kronos, which is a Greek term for time, shows up and he says, hey, what time is it? All he's asking you to do is look at your watch or pull your calendar off the wall. And just say, well, it's February 2022, and the time is, right? That's what, that's what Mr. Kronos is asking you when he says, hey, do you know what time it is? But when Miss Kairos shows up and she asks the question, do you know what time it is? She's not asking you to look at your watch. She's asking you to discern what's going on around you. What's going on in this moment that you happen to be living in right now? Can I just say there's too many of us as Christians that we're messing with Kronos too much and not with Kairos enough. We're just doing the next time slot, right? The next year rolls around. It's the next day. We just, Monday just turns into Tuesday. And we can travel through day after day after day and season after season after season and not be perceiving what God is doing in that moment. Because we're just doing time, but we're doing chronos time. And God is speaking about kairos time. So do you know what time it is? Do you know what's characterizing 2022 in the place in which you and I are doing life? A number of years ago, a guy wrote this book called The Secular Age. He wrote it in 2006. It was extremely prophetic. 
It's this thick, so it's not a casual read if you're interested in it. We are in a pronounced season of secularity in our age. Spirituality, especially that which is faithful to God's word, is evaporating around you at a rate that you have never seen or known. In which I probably could say no one who's ever lived in this country has ever seen or known. The rise of secularism in the world that you and I live in is staggering. I mean, just fly through some thoughts here. Oz Guinness wrote a great book a number of years ago called Impossible People. Christian courage and the struggle for the soul of civilization. Listen to what he says. He says, modernism as a philosophy may oppose faith outright, but modernity does not. Its damage is not through opposition, but through seduction and distortion. It doesn't say, for example, no faith allowed here, but no faith is needed here. Contrary to Jesus and the Torah, modernity claims that man can Now live by bread alone, or rather by science, technology, management, and marketing alone. Secularists do not want God, whereas the secularized have no need of God. And that is only one of the many seductions and distortions of modernity. This creeps in underneath the skin of a believer more so than anything else. Because, see, it's very hard to get a believer to oppose God. It's not so hard to get us to not need him. And if you're not convinced of that, just ponder how desperately you pursue God as though you're gasping for spiritual air and you've got to connect with God. You've got to receive something from God Listen, Monday's coming, and then Tuesday, right? We're just, we're just up doing the next chronological thing. But a desperate need for God? The secularism of our age has taught us, well, you kind of really, really don't need God. I mean, he's a nice add-on for those of you religious people kind of into that kind of stuff. Do you really need God? When I read Genesis, I, I find out God designed the world to need him. And the less I depend on him, look to him, and require something from him, uh, the more this world's dysfunction creeps into my soul and, and directs me. Guinness goes on and says this. The truth is that the world, as Christians have known it for many centuries, has gone and gone for good. We are confronting a new situation. The explosion of pluralism alone makes our situation that has not been seen since the diversity of the Roman Empire. Listen, you and I don't get that America is weird. It is a nation formed under the massive influence of Judeo-Christian values. You understand when Christianity comes along to the first century, it knows nothing of that. It is a pagan world married to a... Partial Jewish traditional world. It knows nothing of what you and I and our country has been framed around. So we have to face up not just to others rejecting us, but to all that is new in the grand transformations in human experience that are shaping our lives in the early 21st century. The recognizably Christian world that Christians helped to create and that has been dominant in the West for more than a thousand years, has severely eroded. Rival faiths, supremely secularism, are growing in both numbers and power. Their damaging influence has spread far beyond their own circles, and the future we are all facing together is in some ways radically new for us all as human beings. We therefore have to begin by assessing the transformations of our world and the way they are shaping human experience in novel ways. And then consider what Christian faithfulness means in the light of these new realities. Listen, there's no way for me to begin us to walk down a series on the mission of the church without that statement being true. We need to consider what does Christian faithfulness mean in light of these new realities, in light of this Kairos moment, which is not like what it was 20 years ago for some of us as Christians who have been saved that long. We do not live in the same moment that that world has moved on. 
we live in a different moment. We will be disciples from now on in a different day. It is not the same as it was before. There's still some of us who are trapped in what, you know, being in a nation that has so much of its morality and its governance birthed out of Judeo-Christian biblical ideas, we are still a people trying to figure out how to forge partnerships with conservative politics. That's what a lot of Christianity is still figuring out how to do. Can I tell you the first century church didn't have any meetings that sounded like that? There was nothing to partnership. You didn't partner with Caesar. You just might get killed by him. The world of Roman and Greek thinking was so far different than anything that was in the Bible that for you to try and partner with it was laughable. But our history as a nation comes from ideas that sound like the Bible. So we have thought we can partner with politicians and bring the kingdom into our country. Can you go global for a second and stop being obnoxious Americans? All over the world in dictatorships, in communism, in tribal situations that are horrible, the kingdom of God is advancing. In the darkness of China, with all of its oppression, the kingdom of God is advancing. God doesn't need politicians. He needs the church, though, to be the church. And there's something we need to discern about the times in which we are living that perhaps we have failed to do that. So into that sort of a setting, we get this Isaiah revelation that there are moments when God steps into his people and he's saying, behold, I'm doing a new thing among you. Listen, in our increasingly secular world, God doing a new thing is going to encounter new evil and new difficulty. I'd love to tell you that being a part of a local church is going to be fun, fun, fun until daddy takes the T-bird away. That ain't going to be what it's like. But you know, there have been Christians who have gone before us who didn't have the luxury of living in America, who have advanced the kingdom of God at great cost. And the kingdom sat in them in such a way that they were good with that. Give you a quick couple of thoughts here from a book by G.K. Beale and Mitchell Kim called God Dwells Among Us. He says, Before departing for Burma at 24, Adoniram Judson's deep conviction, this is this is early 1800s, when Adoniram Judson's leaving America to go to Burma. His deep conviction to engage in this missionary service was to be devoted to this work for life. Whenever God in his providence shall open the way. His convictions were tested for 38 years in Burma through the loss of two wives, seven of 13 children, and terrible sickness at sea that led to his death. In the face of constant persecution and imprisonment, he not only finished a Burmese English dictionary and grammar, but also translated the entire New Testament into Burmese. After 10 years, he had one church of 18 believers. How many of us would have given up on whatever he was doing a long time ago? I think, I'm not sure I'd be okay with losing one wife. How many of us would read that God's not in this? Come on. Things just aren't going favorably for you, man. How many of us would sit down with Adoniram and say, dude, I don't know what you were thinking when you came over here, but it looks like God's not with you. You've lost two wives. You've lost seven children. And after all these years, you got one church with 18 people in it. Welcome to being a discerning American. We don't have a kingdom value. We have an American value. And he's not drumming up enough customers and business isn't exactly going. And the executive order would shut this place down and sell it to somebody else. But he had an understanding that you advance the kingdom through darkness and difficulty that's not cooperating with you. What if that's our day? What if what he found in Burma becomes America? And what it's like to advance the gospel starts to have those kinds of challenges and difficulties in it. 
Beale and Kim go on and say this, even in Christian America, those with no religious affiliation are the fastest growing religious group today, growing 28% between 2007 and 2012, and they have grown quite a bit more since then. Both unreached people groups and the increasingly resistant West will not be penetrated by the gospel, will only, sorry, be penetrated by the gospel with great sacrifice and cost. We, or pardon me, will we make the sacrifice that mission demands? I have to ask that question before we get into a series on mission. Will we make the sacrifice that mission demands to be the church in this hour for God's purpose to be fulfilled? It will cost us something. He goes on and says, recent studies of American young people are not encouraging. The goal of their faith, and let me just pull this off all the young people and put it on everybody, because if you're an American, it's not just a young person challenge. And I'm an American, unfortunately. The goal of their faith is primarily feeling good, happy, secure, at peace. Because they desire, quote, subjective well-being. Being able to resolve problems and getting along amiably with other people. If Judson's goal was subjective well-being, Burma would remain in darkness today. Given the current challenges of settling into the sacrificial challenges of marriage and career, how much more challenging will it be to embrace the sacrifices of global mission among the least reached peoples on earth? In other words... Much will the church do its mission when its mission becomes really, really hard and perhaps rather unrewarding? 18. You got 18 people in your church after all these years? That's not attractive. But God had a future in Burma that started through this man and through the incredible sacrifices that he lived to advance the kingdom. As I'm praying through some of these thoughts, you just can't avoid the word revival and renewal. I put in your outline there. There are two things that testify that the church is in need of revival. There's probably more than this, but these are the two that featured in my heart. One is when the church loses its value for its mission. Listen, churches can become great places for social activity to take place. These are where my friends are. You know, I used to be part of the Rotary Club. Now I'm part of Lake Your Christian Center. Uh, or we, we used to be really, really involved in the school system and, and you know, we, that was all of our friends and now we're a part of this church. It can, it can become that. But see, when you advance the kingdom and the, and the darkness steps into your face and knocks you to the floor and the enemy makes it really, really hard and sin is at work and there's brokenness in the setting, uh, it's really hard to advance the kingdom when it becomes hard. And suddenly, something can displace the value, right? I mean, if, if Beale and Kim are accurate and they're saying the goal of faith is primarily feeling good, happy, secure, at peace, if that's what we're after and it's going to bear witness with us that the kingdom has come when those are the things that we achieve, then when darkness pushes back on the church, will the church love and value its mission? That's a serious question. And the church needs to be revived to have a heart to love the mission when it becomes that. And the second thing is when the idols and ideas of earth dominate the affections and the lifestyles of God's people. All right, so that, that's the setting that finds us in Isaiah chapter 43. A moment where God announces that he is doing a new Thing. So let me give you a quick theology of a new thing. So you can see this announcement from God is radical. It's amazing. But it's not the only time he does this. Right? All right, so you're going to get a little bit of motion sickness traveling through Isaiah this fast. 
Okay, but Isaiah is a massive book, and it covers a lot. And, and I, I wouldn't put, ask you to put your hands up on how many people have actually read Isaiah. Uh, no, no, don't even have to raise your hand. Uh, Isaiah is not the easiest book to explore. So you're going to get a, a rapid introduction to Isaiah. If you want to go read it after this, I hope this is helpful. But there is this moment that's coming that begins to be framed in Isaiah chapter 1. And this is how Isaiah chapter 1 describes their Kairos moment. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Can, can I just put an asterisk there? And can I ask all the parents who have attempted to rear and bring up children, can you make sure you read that verse? Because uh, when I was having children, I read a lot of books on parenting. And because I have a tendency to try and think the way the author thinks and figure out how you're trying to construct this argument, there's just something about my brain does that. I would notice that a lot of authors made it sound like they were creating a formula. And by the time you got through the book, the formula started to feel like if you'll do chapter one, followed by chapter two and chapter three and four, you'll get chapter five and six. You guys have raised children and recognize it doesn't quite work that way. And then if you go back to the book, you start to feel like, well, okay, if I didn't get that outcome, then I must have screwed up chapter two or chapter four. Somewhere in here, I screwed this whole thing up. All right. Can, can we take a little bit of a lesson here? I don't think God is a bad parent. Do you? Children I have reared and brought up. I don't think... Their rebellion is necessarily a reflection of God's failure to be a good parent. So I, I know there are some folks here that parenting, it, it is a tough Olympic sport. And for some folks here whose children have gone wayward, children didn't follow Christ, they, they've gotten in trouble, they, they have been difficult on your family, you are very tempted. And listen, all of us in this room, if you've raised anybody for a few minutes, have failed. We bring our humanity into this setting. We're, we're not doing all this stuff right. This doesn't dismiss us from trying to do it right. But neither do we have that kind of power over other people to assure that if we do it all right, they will turn out this way. Well, here's a God who did it all right. And these people rebelled against him. And then in verse 2, he describes their moment. The ox knows its owner, the donkey, its master's crib. But Israel doesn't know me. My people do not understand a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. This is Isaiah chapter 1. This is... Uh, somewhere 750-ish, 730-ish uh, B.C. And the prophet Isaiah comes on the scene. And if you read, and you keep reading, you're going to get a little bit of interaction with the situation. And then you're going to, and in chapter 13, you get from chapter 13 to chapter 39, you get God pronouncing judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment. So if you, if you lack clarity on whether God's okay with everything that happens in the universe, read Isaiah, just so you can be sure that he's not. There's judgment on God's people. There's judgment on the surrounding nation. God clarifies that his righteousness responds to sinfulness in a way characterized by judgment. They have provided the raw materials that there's nothing going on in their world that God would be saying, hey, I am, you guys are so close to a reward. You're, you're so close. You know, just one more step, a little bit of improvement here, you know, and I, and I don't have too much for you to do, but, but they're estranged. They're not interested in God. So if there's going to be a new day, can you figure out where that new day is going to come from? Is it going to come from these people? It's going to have to come from God, isn't it? We sang a song this morning, Keith Lettison, about God's mercy. If there's going to be a new day, it's going to be because God's mercies are new every morning. So we get to Isaiah chapter 40, which now we're going to get in the context of Isaiah 43. And God announces a new day of comfort. 
He's just been in judgment mode for 39 chapters, but then God announces a new day in verse 1 of chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You just hold on to that phrase, the glory of the Lord. Of the Lord. Can you just just put that in your pocket and hold on to it? Because we're going to visit that in a couple of weeks. But it gets mentioned over and over and over again. And if you want to figure out why God responds to things the way he does, it's about that word. He does it for his glory. So a people who can give God no reason to do something good to them next... For the sake of the glory of God, God finds a reason to do it. Listen, this is incredibly hopeful because my resume is in Isaiah chapter 1. If you read the rest of Isaiah chapter 1, it's God just telling you, can you just go away? Can you stop bringing me the offerings? Can you just shut this whole system down? Because it is so corrupt and meaningless. And so when you get to chapter 40 and you have a God who says, comfort, comfort these people. He didn't find that reason in them. He found it in himself. Isaiah 41, verse 8, a day of renewed purpose. Listen, but you, Israel, my servant, if you're a servant of mine, you're serving something that's happening. Jacob, whom I have chosen, so there's intentionality in God, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner saying to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. This is what God says to his people. I hope you feel that this is personal. You get the sense that God says this to you and I, to his church today, to you as an individual, that God says, I chose you from far off. I chose you. I didn't cast you off. I chose you to be my servant. And then he says, fear not. There's a lot of fear nots in Isaiah. Well, God, why? Well, because I am with you. Don't be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Notice the answer to fear in this, in this sentence. It's still our answer. It's not about us. It's about him. This is why theology matters. I know sometimes we just want to read books, you know, a little devotional book here, a little thing about your problem, cute illustration about something in the world. You need to be squared away on who God is and what God has revealed about himself because the answer to my fears are about who he is. I will be this. I am for you this way. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. All right, so that's how God remedies our fears. Then we move into Isaiah 42, verse 5, a new day of renewed commission. God is sending his people and he's still doing that, right? We, you and I live in the era of the quote, great commission. And you're going to hear in the language of this, of here, and you go all the way back to Genesis, the great commission's not new. What Jesus did in giving the great commission wasn't like, oh, nobody's ever heard anything like that before. Oh, really? Let's leave right here. This is 720 years before Jesus says this. Thus says God, the Lord, Who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it. And spirit to those who walk in it. Verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. Do you notice this? That's a mission. Right? That's not just God saying, hey. Humanity, tough to be human, ain't it? I love you, and I just, I just want, what do I want for you? I want subjective well-being. That's your goal in life, 
subjective well-being. I saved you. I heard somebody the other day on the radio, and it's like when I hear somebody say this this way, it's like we're on this mission so that people can know the love of Jesus. That's in your Bible a little bit. Can I tell you, that's not at the top of the food chain. Because what that's really about is I have this sympathy towards people, which is good. We should all have that. We need a lot more of it, quite honestly. And they need to feel loved. And I, and I get that. But you know what we don't get is God being glorified. And when you read in here, God is really into his glory being seen. When you and I create subjective well-being as the goal and mission of the church, well, the second you stop feeling like you're experiencing well-being, your mission is over. That's not the ultimate goal of your marriage. It's not the ultimate goal of your family. It's not the ultimate goal of a local church. Subjective well-being, how I feel, because by the way, when it's subjective well-being, it's what I think makes for well-being. And i, I got to get you to subscribe to that and others to subscribe for that. But what if the mission, because this is the mission that we're on, is described here. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. What if God takes us by the hand and sends us on a mission because he wants us to be a light for the nations? He wants us to bring the new covenant into all the earth. What if that's the mission that we're on? Then Adoniram Judson's life makes sense. It doesn't make sense for him to have done that. If he was after well-being, stay home, dude. Where you're going is not worth the suffering unless the mission is better understood. It's about something bigger than your own well-being. Then listen, verse 7, Isaiah 42. To open the eyes that are blind, right? That's other people. That's people beyond yourself and your own subjective well-being. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That's a mission. That's the mission the church is on. Doesn't that sound just like Jesus? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To to bring recovering of sight to the blind, to set the captives free. Can can you just see that that whatever is new when Jesus says that is already been said? It's kind of not new, but it is new. It's God saying something new, but it's really kind of old here. I am the Lord. This is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Then Isaiah 43, we're getting to that passage. I know it's taking me a while. Isaiah 43, verse 1 You get this Kairos announcement from God, but now, but now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. There's always a lot of need to address fear. Do you notice that? When you go on mission for God, can I just tell you, I wish I could tell you something different. It's going to be scary. Whatever way God launches you into the mission, you're going to need to hear those fear nots over and over again. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Again, the answer to fear is what God does, isn't it? When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, now listen carefully. This love is specific, intentional, and directed. It's not some cosmic force. Oh, oh, God loves, God loves. That's not personal enough. And it's not how God loves his particular people or you as a particular person who's redeemed by him. Listen to this language. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush. Sheba, in exchange for you, B 
because you are precious in my eyes. Can you just notice something happened here? Really, really uncomfortable that I'm not going to explain at all. That God just took Egypt and Cush and Seba and put them in a different category. And then he directed his affection to this group in a way that was different than that group. Did you just see that? I know that's uncomfortable. And I know you're really dying for me to explain that. And I'm not going to do it. (laughs) But you can read Isaiah and see if you can figure it out. You are precious in my eyes, verse 4, and honored. And I love you. I, I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. Do you know that's how God feels about you? That you're not accidentally loved by some cosmic force floating in the universe that sort of gets on you. You have a God who knows your name. He specifically called you from the edges of the universe. You're doing business with him because he came and found you so that he could turn his attention and he could call you precious to him and he could love you and point you out and be specific towards you. You are not vaguely loved by God. You are specifically and intentionally loved by him. And then he turns around and says, fear not, I'm with you. I'll bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, who I created. Lord, why'd you do all this? For my glory, whom I formed and made. So this is a moment where God is, is, he's coming right out and saying, I'm doing a new thing. But when you track with him, it's kind of not a new thing. But he's calling it a new thing. So we're going to call it a new thing. But it's not a new thing like, oh, oh, God used to be into this. And now he's into this. No, 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 no. No, God is doing exactly the same thing he's always been doing. This is Genesis 3 unfolding. This is God sitting down with the heart. Genesis 3 is a moment where actually Peter did some stuff from Genesis 3 a couple weeks ago. Genesis 3 is God redeeming man from the fall. Genesis 12 is God saying, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to pick a people and I'm going to do something through them to all the nations. And I'm going to start with this guy named Abraham. And God is still picking a people and doing something for all the nations. In some ways, I got to tell you, God's not doing anything new. But God says, yes, I am. Because times change and situations change and God does new things in their midst. David McKenna in his commentary on Isaiah says, But now is God's way of drawing the contrast between his condemnation of Israel at the end of chapter 42 and his promise of new things as a word of comfort to his people. The two radically opposed themes are not inconsistent with the character of God. But now also reveals the ultimate purpose of God. Even though his people have been condemned to exile because of their sins, he is constantly at work on their redemption so that they fulfill their destiny as light of the world. This chapter teaches us that whatever God does, he is always moving toward our redemption. Always. Always, whatever God is doing, he has chosen a people. He is not treating you the way you deserve to be treated. He is treating you as a chosen people. So he can do what's next that fulfills his purpose, even though you and I don't deserve it at all. That's what grace is all about. That's why grace is so confusing. Because it feels like something wrong, something wonderful, but something wrong is being done to us. And it kind of is. Of the way Charles Spurgeon says this. Keith, you can start heading back up here. Charles Spurgeon says, Observe the tender ties that bind us, bind our God to his people. Creation, the formation of them for his praise, redemption, the purchase of them for himself, and the calling of them by their name. The Lord remembers the bonds which unite us to himself, even when we forget them. He recollects his eternal love and all the deeds of mercy that have flowed from it. Though our memory is treacherous and our faith is feeble, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. Blessed be his holy name. So, all right, here's the verse of God doing new things. That's the context that gets us to this moment. 
Isaiah 43, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. All right, do you know what that's about? A way through the sea, as in the Red Sea? All right, so this is God opening the sea so that they can make a pathway and get through. Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. Who's that? It's the Egyptians. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Now, how many guys know that verse is not teaching you forget about the Exodus? So the problem, this is not God telling you, hey, when you look back on things of the past, look back on them with an attitude. Look back on them in a disdainful way. Now, that's, the Bible reminds us of Exodus over and over and over and over again. So that's obviously not what this verse is saying. This verse is concerned with while you're staring back at that event, you're missing what I'm doing right here. Don't be preoccupied with that in such a way that you can't see what I'm doing now right in front of you. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. It, It can be challenging, can it not? To perceive new things when your surroundings are deserts and wilderness. Isaiah's people were in a really, really, really bad place. They were in a spiritual desert as well. They were estranged. They were uninterested in God. And God showed up and said, I am doing a new thing amongst the people who don't deserve anything. But I am doing it. How do you and I interact with this this new thing? One last thought from Mr. Spurgeon. It is a very profitable thing to remember the things of old. It's greatly beneficial to us to study what God did in years and ages long gone by. Yet God intends to do for us something in the future that shall eclipse all the past. Especially was this true in Isaiah's day. Dear friends, do not always dwell on the past. You who are getting gray are very apt to say that the former things and former times were better than now. I don't know anybody like that. (laughs) Do not say so, but believe this promise of Jehovah. Behold, I will do a new thing. So I'll go back to my question before we pray together. What if God wanted to do a new thing among us? And I need to hear that as one who's part of a faith community in a country. I think that's a little blurry, quite honestly. That's not my primary call. I just happen to be in a country with other Christians. Specific calls, I'm called to a church. Is that more clear to you that you're called to a church more than you're called to America? I make a case for that from the Bible. What if God wants to do a new thing? among us and that new thing among us would come from him doing a new thing in each one of us individually so i'm not just waiting to see oh how what's everybody else going to do to create this new thing in the church i'm part of the church so god doing a new thing here means god doing a new thing here in me And, and here's the challenging question do you perceive it Do you know what time it is? Do I know what time it is in God and what God might be doing? Because these last few years have been like deserts and wilderness. They have been difficult times. Appreciated the word that's informed. Do not dread or be afraid. I don't know if you read Isaiah before you gave that word. (laughs) Do not fear. God changing some things. That's what happens when God does something new among us.
So how about this morning, before we kind of get into that series, could, could we just take a moment together and just pray and ask God to help us perceive together, perceive together? Let's bow our hands. Lord, all over this auditorium this morning, and Lord, folks who are watching this morning as well, or what would it mean for us to ponder you at work in categories of our lives in new ways with new things? Lord, perhaps, perhaps this morning there are some here or some watching, Lord, who would say, I am like those Israelites. I am estranged from God. I have been so distant, so unplugged, so not gravitating toward the things of God. I'm just, I'm just kind of, I'm somewhere else. What would it look like? I speak to you this morning, whoever you are, what would it look like for God to say to you, I'm doing a new thing. It's springing forth right now. And, and, and I know you might respond and say, but, but there's no way God could do a new thing. You see, because I haven't been interested at all. Even, even you saying something to me this morning, I'm barely even interested right now. Oh, can I just tell you? It's not coming from you, this new thing. It's coming from God. Wherever you are, you could be as distant as you have ever been in your life from God. And God could say, comfort, oh, comfort my people. Tell them the war is over. Their sins are pardoned. And I'm going to do a new thing in their lives. God, I pray for every person among us, everybody who calls Lakeview Christian Center home, that for the last few years... They have felt estranged from your presence, Lord. They have drifted into places. They feel like they're in the wrong place. God, would they hear the louder voice of the God who says, I am doing a new thing with you. I am doing it. Do you perceive it? Lord, give us grace to perceive. I pray for every person who feels estranged from God. Lord, would they just perceive that you are invading that. You are doing something new in their lives. Right now to bring them into this place that you are creating. Got to pray for new things in relationships in our midst. New things, Lord. New things in places where relationships have been bad and they have been broken and hostile. New things in families that are falling apart, that are disconnected, where words have not been spoken to fix words that were terribly spoken. New things in marriages that have even gone beyond divorce. New things in marriages that are struggling and gasping for air right now and indifferent to one another and distant from each other. God, do new things in these settings. Things that just demonstrate your mercy invading our lives. Lord, take us by the hand. Lord, these are the settings that tell the story of your gospel that bring light to the nations. God, I I pray, Lord, not just for our church, but the church in America, Lord, where relationships are so cheap. Lord, they just have become cheap. God, I I pray that what you would do amongst the relationships of your people would be a new thing, God. We would find our hearts knit together on a mission together that so much outweighs our personal sense of well-being. I had a sense that we should pray this morning that there are some, and that maybe it's the gray category, there are some here who God has used you in the kingdom of God in the past. And you have stopped pondering whether he would be using you today. You have been God's servant in the past. You have brought ministry into other people's lives. You have cared for souls. You have protected people in the kingdom of God in the past. And and you have kept looking back like I've done that, like I've done that. And I think God wants to tell you, do not remember the former things. I think you need to wrestle today with the thought, what is God doing right now? 
What call are you needing to hear from him right now? Do not dismiss what God has today just because you did something in the past. I think that's a mistake. Listen afresh. What is God saying to you and doing? Is there a new thing? Do you perceive it that he's doing a new thing? Let's stand up together. Lord, it is helpful, it is helpful for me to hear. There are moments when you speak of new things. There are moments when your intentionality is specific and strategic. So God, I'm grateful for that because it means a new agenda comes flying into my world, into my life. But Lord, would you rescue us from staring back at at old wine? That truly was good enough. It was good, Lord. We have wonderful remembrances of the good things that we've experienced in you. But we're not intended by that old wine to stop looking for the new things that God would be doing now. God, as much as we have a testimony of the exodus of our lives, Lord, thank you for the stories we heard this morning in baptism of folks who have found life. They have been rescued out of the darkness of this world. They have new life in you, Lord. An exodus out of the world has taken place in their lives. You have invaded the grip of spiritual Egypt and called a people to yourself. And yet you say, Don't just stare back at that though. I'm doing something right now. Do you know what I'm doing? Do you perceive it? Oh Lord, would you help Lakeview Christian Center to be a perceptive church, Lord, that we perceive what you are doing among us. Would you help us as a family and as individuals, Lord? So in the days ahead, Lord, we pray, help us, make us sensitive to the new things you do in our midst together. All right, I'm going to dismiss us, but I think there may be some folks here who just, you'd just like some folks to pray for you. Maybe something God spoke to today needs somebody to just agree with you in prayer about that thing. And you'll be amazed how sometimes God just takes it to another place. He solidifies it before you leave today. So if that's you and you want our prayer team to, to pray with you and just agree with you about something God has shown you this morning, Before you leave, just come on forward. Just take a moment. Just meet with God. Let God interact with you. And and for the rest of us who feel like, I think the Lord has done with me this morning right now. You guys are dismissed. You can go fellowship in in the lobby area and connect with one another. But if you need some prayer, let's take time to pray. And if you just need to lean back in your chair and just think for a moment. I just had a strange feeling about this morning and the next coming weeks. So can, can we posture ourselves toward a new thing, whatever that is and whatever God wants to show us? So if you want to digest that for a few minutes, you can sit down and do that for a moment. You can come find some time to pray or uh, love you guys. Look forward to seeing you. Love you guys at home and guys who are watching. Thanks for tuning in and staying in step with us. See you guys next week.